In this episode of Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series, Drs. Sean Picorni and Emily P. Zeitler examine healthcare disparities that contribute to the underdiagnosis of atrial fibrillation and share evidence-based strategies to overcome some of these barriers to care. Uh, thanks for tuning in for episode three, which uh, is falling through the cracks of a fragmented healthcare system, reducing disparities in AFib diagnosis and treatment. We're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about the gaps and, dis and disparities in the healthcare system that contribute to um, differences in AFib detection and treatment. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about strategies that may help overcome these barriers. First of all, um, the AFib prevalence is different between men and women. And we talked about this a little bit in episode one, but I'll remind everybody that while incidence is higher among men over the lifetime, prevalence is relatively similar between groups based on um, longer life expectancy among women. But that doesn't, that's not the whole story. We know that there are uh, fundamental differences in, in men and women um, based on a number of factors ranging from the mechanical to the electrophysiological to hormonal to anatomical. And we can see how those differences play out in the, in the arrhythmia space, both with regard to atrial arrhythmias and of course ventricular arrhythmias, which are not the subject of our, of our chat today, um, but certainly uh, are, there are plenty of differences there. But with regard to atrial fibrillation, um, we know that um, because of smaller left atrium, for example, um, that there is lower incidence of AFib um, in women at younger ages. Really importantly though, in addition to these um, pathophysiological differences between men and women, we know that women and men have very different experience of atrial fibrillation. The symptoms associated with it and uh, are very different between men and women as as is the differences in quality of life. Now for both men and women, AFib has a dramatically negative impact on quality of life, um, but this is even more dramatic uh, among women. And we saw, the, we saw that repeatedly in the literature, um, especially it was really nicely shown in, from the Orbit AF trial or uh, registry. And um, perhaps, uh, Sadly, the, um, despite these uh, differences in experience of AFib with women experiencing greater symptoms and, and worse quality of life, there is less treatment of atrial fibrillation among women, both with regard to um, AFib-related stroke prevention and also with regard to um, rhythm control. And here um, we're talking mostly about oral anticoagulation, and we know that at, across the spectrum of risk score, um, including if you use the CHADS-VASC risk score, across the spectrum, women are less likely to receive oral anticoagulation. There are a lot of reasons for that, and we're not going to go into that here today, um, but it is true that really at every level of risk, women are less likely to be treated with anticoagulation. And as I mentioned, in addition to differences in stroke risk prevention, we also see that women are less likely to receive aggressive rhythm control strategies, including atrial fibrillation ablation. Despite the fact that um, we know that women get uh, significant benefit in terms of quality of life and symptoms from atrial fibrillation ablation, in fact, it's pretty similar to the benefit that men get, albeit women start at a lower quality of life in the setting of atrial fibrillation. And we learned this pretty clearly from the Cabana trial, um, which was uh, you know, one of the largest randomized controlled trials of atrial fibrillation ablation in the contemporary period. 
Um, and basically everything that I just said, you could take out the word woman and replace it with uh, ethnic and racial subgroups. Um, black patients in particular, even though they're less likely as a group to develop atrial fibrillation, they're far less likely to uh, receive aggressive treatment with regard to oral anticoagulation. And in addition to that, outcomes are far worse among uh, racial and ethnic subgroups, um, particularly among black patients. They are far more likely um, to have uh, differences in stroke and heart failure and even overall mortality in the setting of atrial fibrillation. Even after we adjust for a variety of socio-demographic factors, um, these differences don't go away. So there's something more to it than the things we can measure in a registry. There's something different about uh, the way that um, subgroups, including women or racial and ethnic subgroups, there's something different about the way they experience the healthcare system um, in order to treat atrial fibrillation, reduce their stroke, and, and uh, maintain sinus rhythm. So we have a lot of work to do um, to try and address those disparities. Uh, um, because those differences and those disparities fall along a wide range of categories, we can think about them in the context of patients. You know, how do patients experience the healthcare system differently um, in terms of their preferences and their ability, ability, ability to engage with the healthcare system? but also how providers interact with those patients, whether there might be implicit bias that guide their decision-making differently from one group to the next. And then of course the system, some things that are sort of immediately modifiable within the system, like patient education materials, are these accessible to all groups, but also less modifiable things. For example, rural populations who have less access to expert care um, in atrial fibrillation, where I practice um, electrophysiology, I, I serve a large rural population, and it's very difficult uh, for these patients to come repeatedly to, the, to a healthcare system, to a facility that might be hours away in order to titrate medications or undergo repeated uh, procedures. Sean, what do you think about all that? That one of the things that you highlighted that I think is really critical is the issue of systems of care. And I think one of the ways to reduce disparities is to have a comprehensive approach through a, a team, an integrated AF management team that really facilitates diagnosis as well as management. And I think that, that you've mentioned this a few times over the talk. I mean, a, a key part of that is involving the patient in that, in that uh, discussion, that decision-making. And so we need to have patient education that resonates with an individual patient. We need to encourage them and empower them to be involved in their care. And, and a big part of that is engaging these patients in shared decision-making. And I think that, that that's really where patients feel empowered and where they can then be engaged in their decision-making. And we've done studies to show that when you engage patients in their decision-making, when you provide them education materials that resonate with them, they're more likely to select interventions that, that will ultimately improve their outcomes, including anticoagulation for stroke prevention. I think that, that we need better technology as well. So we need integration with wearable devices within our electronic health record. We need to be monitoring um, adherence to anticoagulation and adherence to treatment strategies in a better way than we currently are, again, through our electronic health record. I, I think really, the key at the end of all of this is making sure that we identify patients who have atrial fibrillation and who are at risk for stroke. And we need to 
really get those patients on anticoagulation when it's appropriate based on their CHADS-VAS scores as you covered in the previous session. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, um, you know, I think when we think about what we can do as individual physicians, individual care providers, um, you know, it can feel overwhelming. I mean, what can we actually do to address these disparities and these differences in care? Well, you know, on, on the one hand, we need to identify them and, and be aware of them and know about them. And that does take um, some introspection as a physician and also some awareness of um, developing evidence in the literature. Um, and then, you know, we, we did talk a little bit in the previous episode about the shortcomings of some of the objective risk calculators, but I think they serve a really important purpose in this context, which is that, you know, in order to objectify the questions about how to treat a patient, we can use these calculators to sort of to gut check ourselves. Are we thinking about this patient in an objective way? And will we think about them differently if they look different or acted different? So those calculators can be really helpful to try and narrow those, those differences between groups. And then um, I think also just being really aware to meet patients where they are. Um, a lot of the decisions we make around atrial fibrillation, and we'll talk more about this in later episodes, but a lot of the decisions are highly preference sensitive about whether to take oral anticoagulation or whether to pursue rhythm control. So we need to be really sensitive to those, to those preference sensitive kinds of decisions. It's very easy to tell a patient we think they should take oral anticoagulation and then write a prescription. It's a lot harder to understand where they're coming from and meet them where they are and then come up with a decision that makes sense for them. So I think being aware of these differences and understanding how to approach each patient in an objective way, um, in a preference sensitive way, would, is, is a really uh, important step in, in doing something at the at the point of care. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Emily. I think one, one thing I would just add before you wrap things up for this session is, is just that it's important when patients say no that they don't want anticoagulation, you need to really explore why that is. And so frequently all patients say in clinic, well, I'm 80 years old and I have to die of something. And so if I die of a stroke, I die of a stroke, I don't want to take a blood thinner. But, but then when you really talk to them, what's important to them is their independence and living alone and enjoying their quality of life. And, and it's really important to highlight to them that for many of those patients that have a stroke with atrial fibrillation, that's really what's taken away much more frequently than actually life itself. And, and so again, I find that that resonates well with patients. That's an excellent point. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so we'll, we'll wrap this, this session up here, but I just wanna uh, summarize with the fact that, you know, we know disparities exist in the diagnosis and treatment of atrial fibrillation. That's just true, so we should be aware of that. And women and patients that belong to racial and ethnic subgroups, especially black patients, are less likely than men and patients who are white to have atrial fibrillation, um, but are more likely to have a stroke or to die from an afib-related uh, problem. Um, the use of person-centered medication assessment that, in, that involves patient preferences and accessibility, including cost, um, as well as consumer wearables and risk score calculators, that all of these things contribute to a comprehensive approach to patients that meet them where they are. So in our next podcast, we're going to address the very important issue of anticoagulation therapy, including patient non-adherence, um, and we'll suggest some strategies to overcome it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to listen to the other episodes in this Masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available online.
This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.